It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is Time Enough Podcast. Hello, welcome to Time Enough Podcast, where we talk about episodes of the Twilight Zone and beyond. This is Matt here. Joining me today is Ivan Bodley, and that's that's Bodley, right? I think got the O right. Yeah, usually Bodley, but you oh, know, okay. like I said, I've been called worse no matter what. Okay, I coin flipped on it. I know we've talked before, and I was like, <laughs> oh, what is that O again? But uh, <laughs> yeah, you are a bass player extraordinaire who has played with north of fifty. Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, Martha Reeves, and and, uh, and I'll get it right this time. Sam Moore. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Very cool That's stuff. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, last time we got into to Spinal Tap. So uh, here we got some more music, a passage for right. trumpet, a music-minded right. Twilight Zone episode. And, yeah, uh, what, what's your history with the zone? Is this something you, you've been watching since you were a kid or just something that caught yeah, your interest? Casual, casual fan, casual fan. You know, it was always coming, uh, always late night reruns on Channel 11 or whatever on Sunday nights or whatever it was. You just sort of catch it occasionally, but it, it was always immediately compelling whenever I would see it. It was like, you know, yeah, Serling's interesting. And the storylines were kind of weird. And I was like, yeah, I'm into this. I could be, it's not, it's not a horror movie. It's not a ghost story at all, you know. It just kind of always made you think, so I dug it, you know. They're kind of metaphysical, I guess. Um, and, and I've yeah. mentioned on the podcast before, one of the reasons I'm even doing this is just because I got the Blu-ray set, and I was like, I need to watch all of these and pay attention. So <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is this is my way to do that. Um, anyway, today's episode, let me just run through a bit of trivia on it. Uh, this is a Rod Serling script, so it's, it's one of the man's, uh, you know, had his mind on the thing. I, I didn't even write a note for that because you start seeing Rod Serling and you just skip over when you're making your trivia. <laughs> um, right, do, do we know the original air date? Oh, geez, I closed my browser. Uh, it's going to be uh, about spring 1960. Uh, I don't 60, have the exact okay. date. Yeah, yeah, because the show started in late 59 and this is a late season episode. So that's going to put us about springtime. But uh, yeah, I already closed my browser just to make sure I could... Uh, you know, use my Zoom properly. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, Joey Crown, our our main character here, musician with an odd, intense face. Oh, I'm reading the prologue. Excuse me. The main event here is Jack Klugman as Joey <laughs> Crown. He makes a total of five Twilight Zone appearances, but his claim to fame is five years with Tony Randall on The Odd Couple and seven as Quincy Jones, M.E. Is that M.E.? Is the E for emergency? Yeah. Medical emergency? Medical okay. examiner. Medical examiner. He was America's favorite TV coroner. There we seven go. Seven years on Quincy. Yeah, I know that show very well. I got to admit, you know, I, when that was on, I was probably like 
six seven years old and and i was like why isn't this a why isn't this a cartoon so (laughs) yeah um later i did see some proper odd couple so i i I do have some plugment on the mind Um, america's favorite tv coroner and there's he's he's a very short list of favorite tv coroners but he's got to be the top tv coroner (laughs) oh the other thing that confused me is i i was in the boy scouts and there was a another scout in there named quincy first name and then Ah, we got this show where Quincy's his last name, it's not that common a name. So I was right. like, really confused as a as a young tyke. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Understandable. Uh, Gabe was played by John Anderson. He's one of those guys who showed up on every TV show. One of his last roles was guesting on Quantum Leap. Um, but that resulted in the show's soundtrack album actually honoring him with a dedication. And director is Don Medford. We will get him for five more episodes of The Twilight Zone. Uh, He got in lots of other TV directing glory, having helmed the two-part finale for The Fugitive, and later on, 26 episodes of Dynasty. Wow. Nice. I guess there's a lot of Dynasty, although that was a primetime, right? So it's not like an everyday. It was a primetime soap once a week, and it was like, for a long time, the largest television franchise in the world literally wow. you know oh wow i would have given that to gunsmoker bonanza but yeah uh-huh. <laughs> i guess they're all in the same ballpark they kind um, of are they're just different eras ivan i think you can now see the uh prologue if you give us a quick reading on it i'd be happy to joey crown musician with an odd intense face whose life is a quest for impossible things like flowers in concrete or like trying to pluck a note of music out of the air and put it under glass to treasure. Joey Crown, musician with an odd, intense face, who, in a moment, will try to leave the earth and discover the middle ground, the place we call the Twilight Zone. Well, that's one of the better impressions I've gotten on this show. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you've been practicing, I don't know. Um, He's influential, Rod Serling, man. That voice is is ubiquitous. Everybody knows it, should. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Question, did did you dry your teeth for this? (laughs) No, not necessary. No, I I have a a whole method, uh, a whole methodology that doesn't involve teeth drying, but I can't go into it. It's very personal, private. That's cool. One one of my regulars, he's like, I got to (laughs) dry my teeth before I do it. So yeah, 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 yeah. Um, when I put this, this isn't an episode I think I'd actually seen that much. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'll be an expert on this show when I finish doing the podcast, but I'm, I'm you know, yeah. I'm working through it as a uh, intermediate at the moment. But so I didn't really know if I was getting into a good one or like a, a subpar one. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I just you see Jack Klugman on the screen. You're like, oh, wait, there's probably going to be something to this. <laughs> right. Um, right knowing what he went went on to become like he became like the super famous actor this is very early on for him but i thought his job in here was really good um because one thing Mm -hmm. you know in 25 minutes the twilight zone sort of has to paint a broad brush so yes sometimes like rod just tells you what the person's like and then they're you know basically like that right where uh I definitely thought there was some nice shades of humanity and regret to klugman's performance here yeah Definitely some depth of character, and he's got his inner demons, which he, he kind of plays very believably, uh, especially given his line of work, you know. Although there is a little, a couple things on the nose, like, you know, when he takes the horn out of the case and the, and the flask drops off the table and breaks, you're like, all right, so 
clearly he's, I, this rod is showing us he's an alcoholic in case you missed the uh the clues earlier right <laughs> yeah um and you mentioned his his lip syncing was not up to par which i don't know i'm watching late night i well, I was I was into the performance. I wasn't paying attention. I also can't play any instruments you blow into, but <laughs> yeah, it wasn't bad. There were just some technical things that, like uh, most musicians or especially any wind players, would notice immediately. And sort of like the fingering was was it wasn't you know somebody had given him like possibly a trumpet lesson, so he sort of understood what the embouchure was, and you kind of have to tighten up your your whole jaw to to produce a sound from the thing. But clearly, he wasn't trying to like you know spend a lot of time trying to double what the, what the player was actually recording for him you know yeah i'm sure it drives you crazy when you see a guitarist on screen who's clearly not playing the guitar yeah <laughs> <laughs> well there was a weird thing he kept doing th that trumpet players were well, two a couple of trumpet things that just never ever ever happened you know like he, he kept putting the whole mouthpiece into his mouth to kind of like wet it and warm it up like like that trumpet players just don't do that. Saxophone players do that because they keep their their reeds moist. Like they'll they'll lick their whole mouthpiece. The trumpet player will only lick the inside of the cup or possibly blow in it to kind of warm it up. But I've never ever seen a trumpet player just take the whole mouthpiece. And, oh, you know, it's like no, that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't ever happen. Well, I was playing orchestras. Um, you know, I'm the cello player, so I don't, I don't see the horns in the back. Although. Um... This was in Atlanta, actually. I, we were doing uh, pictures and exhibition, and they had mm -hmm. put the. Sometimes, you know, in the orchestra, you flip the violas and the cellos, so we were kind of in the back. And then they put. I was in the back of that section. They put the uh, brass section directly behind me, and I lost oh, more yeah. hearing from that concert yeah. than most rock concerts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. Now, if I'm if I'm setting up an R and B band, and you know, I put the I put the horns on the other side of the stage, like put them over there. They're good. They're loud. They play really loud. <laughs> The other thing too is like when he pawns his trumpet in the during the episode you know he pawns it mouthpiece and all and that's another thing that a trumpet player would never do like the mouthpiece is a personal sort of thing it's almost like as a cello player it's your bow you know like you know the the you almost have the the cellos can be kind of interchangeable but the bow like the mouthpiece for a trumpet player that's their sort of signature thing so he would take that, you know, any trumpet player would take that off and put that in his pocket and keep that, you know. So if he ever got another trumpet again one day, he would have that mouthpiece. And then when we run into Gabe, Gabe, quote unquote, it was, the, you know, the hipster version of Gabriel with the trumpet, you know, which is a little on the nose. The guy's got a soul patch and like, yeah, just call me Gabe. I was all right. I get it. I know you are, dude. You know, then he's like says, can he, he wants to try his horn. So he just hands him the horn again, mouthpiece and all. And that's something that a trumpet player would never do. They're like, no, no, I got my own. Like I'll just pop, you know, like they don't swap spit like that. They just don't. It's a really personal sort of thing. So I was like, all right, poetic license. I let it, I allowed it. I let it go. But you know, I noticed like as a technical point, like, nope, that nope, <laughs> that They're wouldn't happen. Good. Yeah. They didn't have a you know covid protocols at the time <laughs> exactly right yeah you know and my, my note for him i you know i wasn't even i mean i was thinking angel gabriel i trumpet didn't even occur to me so my, my note was just gabraham lincoln uh right, right, the, right. the soul patch there <laughs> well it was a little on the nose because again you know gabriel the, you know, the archangel is the trumpet player so like you know suddenly you realize that like klugman couldn't have been a sax player or a bass player who tried to off himself because he runs into gabe the hipster angel, you know, who's got to also be a trumpet player to make the script work. And I was like, okay, I see what you did there. I get it, you know. 
I, I guess but this for is... us bass players who want to commit suicide, we're out of luck. You know, we're, we can't be in the episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about the things. You know, they, they cover so many topics. It's, a, it's an anthology show, so we've been noting on the space episodes how just how they just made up the numbers for distances, <laughs> like they weren't really right. thinking about. Yeah. It. So, so here, like I guess all the um, the wind protocols or the brass protocol stuff is just things that. They, you know, Rod wouldn't have even thought about writing this, and the production staff never would have thought about doing it. So, <laughs> didn't even bother them. Like it was sort of like that ultra realism wasn't a thing in those days, and especially on a TV schedule where you're shooting one a week or something. It's like, no, we got to get pages done today, and yeah, yeah, okay, mouthpiece, whatever. Like you know, just put the trumpet in the window with the price tag, and that's as that's as as in depth as they would get with something like that. Uh, you know, and no, if nothing was ever shot on location in those days either. Like everything's on the sound stage; it's on the back lot of the studio. You know, it was just—it was the time. It was, and, and and very well in keeping with the time. And Serling knew that. I think you know the point of the story was not about the mouthpiece of the trumpet. Clearly, you know. <laughs> well, half of him is is the horn, right? Uh, maybe like a few percent the mouthpiece. That's but... right. <laughs> I, I do know that you know when I fir first came to Japan, I didn't know anyone here or anything, and uh, I, I still had to bring like my acoustic guitar. I was like, "Oh, it's my samurai sword," you know. So right, it, it is. It would be difficult to think of uh, getting rid of that. And a trumpet seems, I don't know, relatively portable. So I guess the point is, he's just like that hard up on his luck. But <laughs> he's hard up on his luck, and then when he decides to kind of off himself, I think basically he's he's pawning the trumpet, and he's. He, well, he says to the pawn shop guys, like, I'm not, I'm not here for a loan. I'm here to sell it. Like, so he knows he's not coming back for it, basically. So he's going to drink himself to death or at least, you know, get himself drunk enough to throw himself in front of the truck, which he, which he does. And actually, I got to say, that was a good gag with the truck. Because in those days, there's no CGI or something like some stuntman had to actually run out in front of a moving truck and bounce off the fender and hit the sidewalk. You know, it's not a super elaborate stunt, but if you do it wrong, you get squished, you know. So it was pretty, pretty hip little stunt for a, a, a weekly TV episode, I thought. Yeah, that's why they uh, run in um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, the, the stuntman is the, is the cool one, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. So, so um Oh, yeah, this is one thing. Uh, we just recently did the episode The Big Tall Wish, which is one of the first times network TV actually had um, like black leads. And here right. we have a here we have a, a, a jazz episode with all white people. So I was like, correct. Oh, it's kind of like two steps forward, one step back or one step forward, two steps back. I'm not quite sure. But uh, one it of does, those it doesn't feel right. I clocked that immediately. I'm like, where are the black people? Uh, however, in those days, again, you know, in 1960, uh, the country was extremely segregated and the jazz music industry was completely segregated as well. There were white jazz bands like Stan Kenton and uh, Maynard Ferguson and Buddy Rich, you know, and those were like all the white bands and then Stan Getz. And then there were all the black bands that were like Duke Ellington and uh, Count Basie and those guys. And they were like they very often played separate clubs and separate venues like they weren't integrated at all so it it felt it felt odd because jazz is an african-american generated you know music form for sure and and yeah there's no <laughs> there are no black people were even in consulted in the making of this episode but at the same time because of the times because of the period of history when it was filmed it's like 
Yeah, that's actually had some resonance in, in the way that the country and the, and the jazz industry was segregated at the time. Yeah. I'm just curious if, um, you know, Sterling had to really push it for the big tall wish. And for this one was just like, eh, I'll just hold back a little bit, which, uh, cause I I'm guessing that it was probably difficult to get that on tell uh, the big tall wish on television in 1960. Whereas no, you know, this one, the network heads would have basically no problem with. So <laughs> There are very, very few African-American-led television shows at that point in time. Nat Cole had one. Um, uh, the, what was the, 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 you know, you think till the 60s, you know, Bill Cosby, now that we, we can no longer talk about him, but, you know, <laughs> when, when he was on I Spy, he was one of the first African-American leads on, on American network television. That's, you know, late 60s. Like it's yeah. getting, it's way, you know, eight to 10 years past the time that this episode was shot before that became like a commonplace thing, you know, and there weren't, you know, black sitcoms until the early seventies when you have talking about good times and what's happening and the Jeffersons, you know, that was a decade after all this was done. So there was still a lot of change to happen in, in Hollywood and the country at that time. So I, I understand why he probably wasn't, he might not have wanted to push that issue for a number of reasons and that would oh yeah exactly so the path uh, of least resistance you know have a white jazz trumpet player it's like okay and they there were white jazz trumpet players that did happen you know well actually you mentioned that segregated clubs is is at least um puts a little bit of historical i guess uh not well i'll sure authenticity because i was just thinking like yeah i guess as a guy in 2020 i was expecting to see like you know a mixture in the club and i guess that just simply wasn't the case in 1960 so not necessarily right you know but even as you say none of the people in the pawn shop the street like there's no asian people there there are no black people there there's no hispanic there's only white people in this episode mm -hmm. and it was just really common in those days just sort of like you know this leave it to beaver kind of television programming uh which is it too bad but you know in in retrospect i sort of understand why it happened you know when, when you see it now you're like it's, it's glaring now you're like oh yeah wow only white people in this episode it's like you can feel it although even in a two i think it was around the year 2000 maybe a little bit after but i we i was living in athens georgia and we went to see um rudy ray moore dolomite do a show uh they I showed one with dolomite his... Yeah, they showed they showed um, one of the movies, Disco Godfather, and they, he did yeah. about an hour of stand up. And I played um, with Rudy. Oh, that's <laughs> I don't think he yeah. had a band that night, but yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Loved yeah, loved Dolomite. But uh, the next day, he went <laughs> to like the Juke Joint uh, and yeah. did a show there, and, and the word was that was the good one, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but it's just like you know, the college kids had to go the the first one basically. So even well, in two thousand, there was kind of like a, a bit of a, a weird line there. Exactly, exactly as you say. Like when I played with him, it was probably yeah, early two thousands. In the first show we did with him was down in Greenwich Village, and the second show we did with him was in Times Square. And Times Square was a much more mixed crowd, and it was like you know the people that. It was it was more of his crowd, people that knew Dolomite and knew the, all of his, you know, his shtick. He's one of the, you know, foulest mouth rappers you've ever heard. You know, it's just tremendous. So much fun. Although the um, I, I, I've heard fouler than him. Um, also, <laughs> around that time, university, uh, my, my girlfriend at the time and I, we were staying at like a hostel on the Georgia coast. And um, 
part of the hostel being there, there was some deal where they were going to where they needed to take the take a um, 90 year old blind lady to the juke joint every Friday night. And uh, mm. the manager of the place was, hey, I'm going to go take her. Does anybody want to come? It's like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and absolutely. Um, yeah, we go in and see, it's all Miller Light, and and she starts doing toasts that would have you know would have made Rudy Ray more blush. <laughs> they were just like wild coming out of this like blind, sweet little ninety-year-old lady, <laughs> just like Fantastic. whoa! I don't believe that's, you're saying that. It was amazing. Um, yeah, that's awesome. I was so shocked I couldn't. I mean, shocked in a, like that's this is fun way, but uh, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't get it yeah. committed to memory, unfortunately. So. <laughs> um what's what's the instrument you've that got away <laughs> anything like you got rid of it and you you regret it well you mean, well, you mean like some guitar that i've sold that i wish i still had that kind of thing yeah uh i not too many because i don't know if unfortunately i have to reverse my camera angle here but i've got about 20 of them hanging on the wall so i've just kind of kept them all uh i've only sold maybe two bases like ever in my life so I don't have a lot of regrets like that because I still have them all. <laughs> I can't get rid of them. I'm kind of a pack rat when it comes to instruments, you know. Yeah, actually, actually, um, yeah, the one I not quite regret because I, I have a Telecaster now, which is probably better mm -hmm. than the old one. But I sold a Telecaster about uh, ten years ago, and um, it had my blood stains on the pit guard. You know, it looked like right, it had been sure. through Vietnam, like one of uh, Keith Richards Telecasters, and uh, it, I I don't completely regret it, but I'm like because of the battle damage i i kind of wish i kept it <laughs> yeah it's got the seasoning on it right it's got the seasoning yeah the one i have now is pristine so well yeah. i don't gig anymore so it's easy to keep it pristine but <laughs> yeah, yeah right right i don't know if a telecaster looks right when it's not beat up <laughs> right no it's something to be said about the the sweat and the blood that gets on them you know makes them makes them season like a, a cast iron skillet it's good <laughs> it's good for you um i did get a few shades of like it's a wonderful life watching watching this episode mm, yes Agreed. resonates with you so um i guess the idea was not that he was dead like sort of like it's a wonderful life he's about to off himself and he's not necessarily dead now he's in kind of like an alternate observational reality so i, I right. guess that's kind of what's happening here yep because they you know yeah, they make the same yeah, because they they kind of uh, you know six sense it for a while where he's trying to talk to people. So um, right. Oh, uh, which reminds me too, like uh, that whole gag they did with the with the mirror in front of the uh, movie theater where he can't see himself. Like you know, he can see the other people in the mirror. Um, again, in those days, there's no CGI for that kind of thing, so you have to set up a physical prop to do that. So that was actually a really good gag. So either. You have to do like a double exposure with the film or more likely what they do is like it's not really a mirror it's really a window and whatever they're they've built on this side of it they build on that side of it and you know he, but he's only on one you know on one side of it and it can't be seen on the other so it was kind of a kind of ingenious little trick that they pulled there without having you know a nice computer to just remove <laughs> his image from the mirror or something something simple uh, twilight zones are you know they're famous for the twist but i have found that each episode typically has some like really ingenious low tech special effect. Um, right. So I'm, yeah. I'm gonna, I guess that's, I, yeah, I came out of this episode kind of like, what was it? So that, that might've been it, you know, so subtle. You, you didn't even like, well, you picked up on it, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it, that was a good gag. I was watching that going like, Oh, they had to, they had to engineer that 
had to engineer that and and the same thing with the with the with the stunt too in, in front of the truck i'm like that was real like somebody had to run out and hit a truck and fall down like there's no way to fake that in the uh, back in them days you know but yeah the the mirror that was that was a decent gag i've also noticed watching the show in sequence um how often they're just like ah just shoot the sound stage <laughs> nothing on it yeah because <laughs> yeah. here it's like well he's backstage it's just we just just turn the camera around and let's film uh yeah so. I wonder yeah, if that yeah. was like a money saving device or, or on the mind of the writers. Like, oh, if I do this where it's part of it to the soundstage, we, you know, save on some budget. <laughs> I, I think it has to be. It had to be because, again, they were doing, you know, these weekly shows like they had uh, a tight budget and they had a tight schedule. So they really had to get these things down. So, you know, you know, you can't write a, a, a page where um, he's right. You know, he's writing in a tornado like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. Like, no, we, we can't film that. You know, we have to be in the Twilight Zone. Could be like the 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 void. He's in the void. Okay, yeah, great. There's a black. We have a black box theater. Like we can we can do a void. A void is cheap, you know. But you can't do any super elaborate, you know, special effects that you can't film on a soundstage with zero budget and about three lights. You know, that, that's as much as they had to work with at the time. Yeah, one of the reasons I start these podcasts, saying the Twilight Zone Beyond, is because I really do love. The, some of the 80s series where it's I guess since it's a little you know this one looks so classic you kind of have to think about some of the the budget cuts when you know to right, start thinking yeah. about but I just love the ingenious cheapness of some of the uh 80s shows like Tales from the Dark Side or or <laughs> right. Ray Bradbury Theater so um that that's you know I, I want to talk about some of those eventually as well but um they do look like cheaper so <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and they probably did have smaller budgets. They were like syndicated. They weren't prime time. So right, right. Well, all those things. You know, there, there's a there's a limit on what you can do and what you can afford to do and what it looks like. You know, the, the crypt keeper is just this awful skeleton puppet with somebody like you know, triggering the mouth. To, <laughs> you know, from tales from the dark side. You're like, all right, they, that's what they have, and they try to put some lights and some smoke in it to make it look ominous. But I'm like, no, nah, that's, that's a puppet, dude. <laughs> Plastic puppet, and everybody knows it. But it's kind of the fun of it. Um, I guess uh, you, you've played so many shows and things. Uh, what what is your take on the the waste the guy that has to get wasted to to shine because he's like I can't play well unless I'm drunk. Well, uh, unfortunately, that's kind of ripped from the headlines because there are a lot of people who think that you know they sort of like they need to have some sort of chemical removal of their inhibitions to feel like they can just be out there and flow but over and over and over again those people you know if they continue to go the way they go they spiral out of control and they end up you know hospitalized or dead and then uh there's a whole other crop of them that have sort of you know hit bottom figured out that they had to you know go to aa or whatever and cleaned up their act and then once they've cleaned up their act and they come back suddenly they're playing better than they ever played not realizing that they didn't need the chemical chemicals actually, you know, inhibits your reflex time. So like when you get rid of the chemicals, suddenly you can play way better than you ever could be <laughs> when you were loaded. So it's a psychological thing that, but I know a lot of, that's a very common storyline, you know, and um, you know, Charlie Parker who OD'd in what, like 1955, you know, that would have been something well known to Rod Sterling in 1960. You know, that was a, a tried and true trope by then, I think. Um, on what actually, uh, one of my other podcasts, we just did, uh, the, the red hot chili peppers, funky monks, 
mm-hmm. just talking about it. And, and we got into it kind of thinking about how John Frusciante sort of is the, uh, I guess, the the best case scenario for this kind of thing where he, I mean, just got way beyond the pale in the 90s, but somehow managed right. to turn it around, get back with the band, then go do what he wanted to for a while and then get back with the band. So, you know, right. Well, uh, they, they, they lost their, their first guitar player, Hillel, you know, he OD'd and died in what was it, like 88, I think, I think. So like they've, they've really come right up to the edge and then gone past it, you know, like they, they didn't all make it. So John was like, you know, the, 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 the guitar player who came in and he came in very, very young too. Like he was, I don't know what, 18 or something when he joined the band. So he was kind of looking up to these guys who are about 10 years older than him and, and they were doing some bad things. So he did some bad things and it got, got worse and worse and worse. And uh, now I think they finally all, you know, come back from the brink. And of course, as I just said, they're playing better than ever. They sound better because, you know, they're not inhibited by all the, the stupid chemicals, you know, clouding their judgment in their head and their hands and all that. Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking about him because after he did that, I was playing a few of his solo albums. So I'm like, man, these are mm-hmm. good or better than a Chili Peppers one. So <laughs> um, he's, he's a very gifted player, gifted musician, you know, and I'm sure he probably had the same sort of fantasy. Oh, yeah, the the drugs make me create better, like my heroes, like Hendrix or whatever. I'm like, yeah, Hendrix would have been way better if he just stopped that <laughs> too, you know. <laughs> um, the other one I think I wanted to put out is the the idea, I guess, um what's it joey crown in this one he's, he's playing nice pretty smooth trumpet yeah um which has me thinking of miles davis because you introduce someone to miles davis and they're going to be like this guy can can barely play <laughs> right it's not like not really chopsy showing off kind of stuff that was a note that i made when i when i was watching too that the trumpet tone whoever's playing that is like a triple scale hollywood first call musician like that that trumpet tone is very very good it's very mature um it's very smooth trumpets when you hear solo instruments i mean you must have been around brass and reed players as they're warming up you know when they're playing by themselves they don't sound this this pure golden tone they're they're spitty they're farty they're leaky they're hissy they're like you know they don't sound that great you know you got to really kind of either to put them in an ensemble or back up a little bit before they start to sound good. And this was like a solo trumpet tone. It was just pure. It was just really golden and gorgeous. I'm like, yeah, that was a triple scale guy they called. I don't know who played that trial soundtrack, but that was some very high level playing supposedly done by a drunk in an alleyway, you know, <laughs> wasn't totally buying it, even though his character is supposed to be an extremely gifted player. Yeah. So I guess I, I was, you know, thinking of Miles just because he's always got that, not just the choppiness, but he's got, you know, he's got a scratchy tone, right? So it's yeah, not, it's right. not that pure tone that we're hearing um, right. from, from the session musician here, but you know, his tone is kind of like lots of creaks. And I mean, that's, that's what makes right. it awesome. And I'm, yeah, yeah. Like you can hear the spit in it. Right. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm, uh, asking what what do you, what do you think's best in the end the, you know beautiful chaos or or a pure tone <laughs> right i mean it's it depends what you like and, and there's there's time for both because you know miles case in point did some just achingly beautiful clean stuff the stuff he did with the gill Evans orchestra pristine gorgeous really sweet you know and then he's got some of the you know heroin fueled from the 70s which is just 
just absolutely dirty, scarred, painful, you know, funky as hell. So it just kind of depends what mood you're in and how much heroin you're doing, I think, at the time. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the, uh, the, the magic mixture of uh, in a silent way that it's smooth and chill, yeah. but the trumpet's pretty scratchy on that one. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was starting to get get some edge because he kind of founded what what became the, the 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 quote unquote the cool school, sort of the West Coast sound, uh, with his with his modal stuff like you know, kind of blue, nineteen fifty nine, which is right before you know this episode was filmed. So he was that he he created that kind of really cool, laid back, chill kind of jazz vibe that 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 got to be so famous, you know. Yeah, it's a just you know obviously that hadn't fully developed yet in 1960. So I guess mm -hmm. for 1960 this was you know as cool as it got for the well actually I think Sunrise is cool as it got for the jazz, but um for for network TV, <laughs> for network TV. But but uh, in, in all actual fact, 1959 was a seminal year in jazz recording history because Kind of Blue by Miles Davis came out that year, which is one of the, if not the one of the best selling. Uh, jazz albums of all time and also 1959 was giant steps by john coltrane and that was the pinnacle of the mountaintop of the whole bebop movement so like that was as technical as bebop ever got like john coltrane figured out to play you know as mathematically complicated as possible you know and then once he got to the top of that mountain he said all right what do i do now and what he did was he threw away all the chord changes and we start hearing the 1960s um coltrane recordings he's doing things like a love supreme he's playing sheets of sound over one chord or no chords you know just like it became like this really avant-garde thing which you know then spawned people like sun Ra to go like oh we're doing this now okay great <laughs> stand back watch this you know and ornette coleman too the shape of jazz to come was night was i think 59 like all this stuff happened in 59 which is right before this thing was filmed so again that all had to be sort of very present in his mind as he's composing this thing he must have written it you know seeing what was happening in the jazz world because i think serling was a jazz head right was he do we know that we do know that right i don't know we know that but i just can't imagine a guy who looked like that not you know grooving to some bebop <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah he's a hep cat he looks like it you know that's why he writes gabe the angel who's also a, a, a hep cat man <laughs> One of the worst things I did in university was um, I was annoyed with the people on my dorm floor for making noise or something. So I put in a Coltrane's ohm, put it at top uh, volume, locked yeah, my door yeah, yeah. and left for a while. Sure. <laughs> so I just sure. sound blasted the entire hallway with ohm. <laughs> sheets of sound. Sheets. Of, yeah, that's a very, you got to be in a special mood for ohm, I think. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, that, that, and I think that was followed by a, I don't remember what the other one is. It was that major works of John Coltrane CD. So, mm. yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Do you have any other big observations on this episode that that you want to throw out? Those were the big ones that stuck with me. The I remember the mirror, the stunt, the and then the horn things <laughs> were they were bothering me. The, the technical things, it didn't bother me, but I'm just like I noticed them all. You know, I'm like, yeah, it, it pulled pulled me into the reality of the situation. Um, but other than that, no, I think, you know, it raids right up there with a the classic episode. You've got this sort of like moral dilemma with a supernatural kind of twist to it. Uh, 
Oh, I think in your note too, you were talking. I read your your show notes about it. You were talking about you know when he when he meets uh, the girl on the rooftop afterwards, like she's immediately like, "Hey, you totally into him!" Like for, uh, right on the spot. You're like, "Wow, that that escalated kind of quickly." But you know, we only we only had 26 minutes to do the episode, so kind of had to get to the to the money shot soon. You know. Yeah, sometimes the broad rush is, is kind of fun. I mean, it's, it's they, they paint well with a big rush on the Twilight Zone for the most part. But uh, yeah, they, right. they have to use it a lot because of the time. Right, um, right. I always uh, end these with three questions that sometimes seem obvious, but then you ask them and it's not so obvious. Uh, All right. So we'll see if the first one's obvious or not. Who exactly in this episode went into or through the Twilight Zone? Ah, uh, and this one, well, it has to be uh, it has to be Joey because you know he's the one who goes into this sort of purgatory, uh, and then comes to the realization once Gabe hips him to the fact, like, no, you can go back anytime you want, you know. So he's he's in this case, it's almost like uh, the the purgatory is the Twilight Zone, I think, in this particular episode. Yeah, and in this case, it does seem sort of obvious that Joey went through it, and Gabe is sort of of the Twilight Zone, and and that's basically the only, um, you know, the only actors we really spend time with in this episode, so <laughs> or a lot of time with, because um, the, the yeah the manager doesn't really notice that anything's happening. So you know, sometimes like oh maybe uh, people have observed these events kind of experienced a bit of the zone but in this case uh it was pretty much like joey's personal journey so right i think there's only maybe four speaking parts in the whole show right yeah something it's, like that yeah it's it's a yeah it's it's like a it's and and most of it's, it's joey so like yeah it's it's almost it's all klugman pretty much um the second question is did joey since we're you know, it's, we're gonna say it's clearly joey did he deserve his trip through the twilight zone he deserved it yes he did because he made a very conscious choice to jump in front of a truck and kill himself <laughs> so you know and he couldn't couldn't control his demons and finally sort of when he decided to bottom out rather than you know do anything else to tough it out he says i'm gonna off myself so yeah he he invited that one on himself for sure yeah, it's kind of the Twilight Zone or death. So in, in this case, you know, I guess well, this is a <laughs> yeah. case for the Twilight Zone. It's a bit of a blessing for him. So. He, yeah, he kind of lucked out there, you know. Um, while, while I thought he was dead, though, you know, and he's smoking, I'm like, oh, that's that's fine because he's, he's right. dead. You can, sm you can smoke <laughs> after you're dead. <laughs> Not a problem. Not Light a problem. up all you want. <laughs> I think they, they, they know from people that have jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and survived. Like the second you jump, they all immediately regret it. Like, whoops, should have done that. Yeah, whenever whenever you feel like it's time to kill yourself, wait five minutes, you know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> is uh, right. probably a good method to at least, you know. And, well, then you wait, then it's like, oh, wait another five minutes. So it's like, but then I'm never going to kill myself. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of the, yeah. right. But as soon as Klegman gets to the Twilight Zone and realizes he's got a choice to go back, he immediately takes it. Oh, yeah, definitely want to go back for sure, you know. And uh, he regret yeah. it immediately. Hopefully, hopefully a bit cleaned up. Um, yeah, I, I put it in my notes. And the one that really I, I guess I thought about was um, Clifford Brown, because he 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 was in a mm. car accident, wasn't he? Yes, or he a plane was, yeah. accident or something. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, yeah. he's basically got one LP you can you can get, which is, you know, yeah. phenomenal stuff. But uh, yeah, yeah. 
So changed um, the world and died. That was like really tragic. Yeah. It didn't even really pick up steam until after that, which, you know, could have been Joey saying maybe he had just made an amazing recording, you know, so (laughs) that'll catch up later. Interesting too. Like, you know, do we think that because he's had this near death or this post death experience, you know, and given another chance and now he's got a girlfriend, we think by the end, like, is that going to solve all of his problems? Is he now a teetotaler? Now he's not going to drink at all. Like, I'm not completely sold that his problems are over, but you know, the episode's definitely over. That's for sure. Well, he's he's had a a firm warning at least at this point. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if he does end up uh, in Skid Row next week, that's like hardcore his <laughs> fault. So that's him exactly. It's on you, bro. <laughs> uh, my last question is my tripometer. I used to do psychedelic record reviews, so I, mm-hmm. I had the trip. I don't do these on quality because they're generally all pretty good. But the tripometer uh, zero is not trippy at all. Uh, five, it's extremely trippy. You can do a decimal. I have people just make make sounds. So, <laughs> uh, right. where are you going to place this one? In in the Twilight Zone world and the oeuvre of Twilight Zones, this is probably only a two. Because there is a twilight zone, you know, and he goes in, he's in purgatory and he, you know, he dies, but he doesn't die and all that kind of stuff. tries to commit suicide, but isn't killed, you know, so that's, that's trippy, but you know, there's no pig face and there's no, (laughs) you know, no monsters on the, on the, uh, on the wing of the airplane or anything like that. So (laughs) it's pretty, it's pretty tame as far as what Rod can do, because what, you know, once he's in. He doesn't know he's in purgatory, so the set is still the same set. There's no special effects. It's all realistic. And then he runs into Gabe, the hipster named Gabe, and he's a completely normal-looking guy with his soul patch and his trumpet, you know. <laughs> so very untrippy for a, a Serling production. Two. I'll give it a two. Yeah, actually, that was exactly the number I was thinking for this one. Um, mm-hmm. Although you were mentioning, like, you know, monsters and, you know, like, the third eyes and stuff. Uh, right, right. And I was thinking I recently did give my first five on this podcast to A World oh, okay. of Difference, which also is all very real world stuff. Like, it doesn't have uh-huh. the, the imagery in that one's not trippy. But the reality bending in that was enough. Just the right. subtle reality gotcha. bending. But this, again, this is, like, the sh- uh, sh- uh, it's a wonderful life you know made short so that's right. not particularly trippy <laughs> rod serling's take on a one it's a wonderful life you know he's gonna have a very different spin on it than you know every time a bell rings an angel gets its wings you know yeah i'm, I'm more not, down with the rod serling version i think yeah he's I mean, not then, pollyanna-ish like that yeah no, nothing wrong with capra um actually sure. um he did lost horizons i love that movie so mm. <laughs> It's a, different, um, it's a different mood. It's like, you know, a Miles record versus a, uh, a Coltrane record. You got to be in a different headspace for that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I should mention, I don't even have to stretch to grab my Davis box out here. There it is. <laughs> I was, yeah, it was, I think it's about 10 years ago when they realized no one's going to buy CDs anymore. Just started putting out uh, these right. 25 disc sets for like 50 right, bucks. Sure. I, yeah, I need that. <laughs> so, um, we'll wind this one down but i if you could tell listeners where they can find you uh, you got your book i'm i'm sure you've got some some gigs coming up or whatever <laughs> i got gigs i got a book the book is called am i famous yet memoir memoir of a working class rock star uh everything you'd ever want to know about me and more way too much information is at <laughs> funkboy.net f u n k b o i.net links to everything all the socials all the all the youtubes all the book everything it's all there 
Uh, yeah, this tomorrow night I'm going to be in uh, at the Mohegan Sun Casino with Lil Anthony and the Imperials. I'm doing some run with them in the next few days, and I got some things coming up in Atlantic City with Jay and the Americans and Gloria Gaynor and Tony Orlando and a whole bunch of stuff. And then the rest of it's all weddings, funerals, and bar mitzvahs to pay the rent in the meantime. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say that's where you make the money, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's all good. It's all good. It's been busy though. It's been very good. It's been really nice. Okay. Well, thanks for joining in today. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I'm gonna go tell the listener go put on in a silent way. That's that's the thing. That's how you chase a twilight yeah. zone. <laughs> that's that's miles on the cusp of being kind of blue before bitches brew in a silent way like he's he's turning the corner you can hear him turning the corner right there the electricity is starting to creep into the band the the edge is starting to creep into the trumpet tone it's like yep yep something's changing yeah it's good it's good I, and I, I i am a sucker for the uh for the vintage fender road sound that's one that definitely like i agree with all the uh hype <laughs> oh yeah yeah no i, I think zawinul's on that record and um a chick on that one as well yeah, they, I think was, they both are. Is that in the yeah. plot? Now, now I just got to grab it and look at the back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll probably. Before, before Bitches Brew is the one after that, and that's when he became fully electric, and that was when he fully sort of right uh, fusion jazz still. as we know it. Kilimanjaro and this one are, let's see. Right. Your uh, is there. Tony is there. Oh, yeah, McLaughlin is there. Tony Williams well, on the drums. Just, yeah, right. like that's mm-hmm. that's that's the perfect band he's, he's <laughs> current, coming around the corner right then like but i think maybe dave holland like there's still some acoustic instruments on there but he hasn't fully gone into the wah-wah pedal world just yet but he's on his way and it's you can hear it move it's it's a great pivotal record in his career you look so dashing Sat before I wouldn't know who will Help guys walk potato walk It seemed like a disease Scream away the afternoon Dark Alice silence please Guys walk, potato walk, the seam 
like a disease.